Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Your business was humming, but now you're falling behind. Your teams are buried in manual work, tasks are taking forever to complete, and getting one source of truth is like pulling teeth. If this is you, then you should know these three numbers, 37,000. That's the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. With NetSuite, it's everything you need to grow, all in one place. Get your business back to the greatness where it belongs. Learn more at netsuite.com slash podcast 25. And also, before we start the show, we just wanted to point out that we've just announced that the Bowery Boys will be part of the Brooklyn Podcast Festival. For a second year in a row. We'll be on stage live at the Bell House in Gowanus, Brooklyn on Sunday, January 26th. You can get tickets right now on the Bell House website. That's thebellhouseny.com. And we hope to see you there. Episode 305 of the Bowery Boys. Christmas in New York. The lights of Diker Heights. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And I'm Tom Myers. And today on the show, we're going to deck the halls and get in the holiday mood. Boy, are we. And we're going to visit a part of New York that shows its spirit by doing a lot more than just decking some halls. They go, (laughs) Greg, much bigger. Bigger and brighter, I would say. We're talking about the Diker Heights neighborhood in southwestern Brooklyn. And of course, they've got a lot of competition when it comes to Christmas cheer in New York City. Indeed they do. In fact, I think that there's a certain Christmas tree in Midtown, a few blocks away from where we are right now, in fact, that seems to get a lot of attention. Uh, It even gets its own ice rink. (laughs) That is, of course, Rockefeller Center, a place where I was at just a couple days ago. I had family in town. They, of course... No excuses. You don't need an (laughs) excuse to go there. No, but I will just say that there are other areas of Midtown that um, give me... Give me the willies when I visit them, but not Rockefeller Center around Christmas. I'm a softy when it comes to that tree and all of the holiday lights and even the ice skating rink, although there were no skaters. There was just a Zamboni on the ice. And truth be told, you did make a video of the Zamboni machine. Yes. (laughs) But yes, Rockefeller Center represents perhaps the biggest, the tallest of Yuletide budgets. But actually, in the photos that you took, I saw that you were also quite taken by Saks Fifth Avenue and that light display that was happening just across Fifth Avenue. Yes. I mean, talk about big budgets, big, massive budgets. And of course, there are the famous Fifth Avenue department store window displays to take in. Mm -hmm. The ones that haven't been taken over by co-working spaces. No. Sorry Sorry to to be a downer. You're referring to the old Lord and Taylor, which was bought by WeWork in 2017. And 
is an entirely separate story. But yes, department stores, Macy's, Bryant Park, of course, is decked out with the holiday market and its own ice rink. Christmas songs playing everywhere. Ever, even at CVS, I mean, you can hear Christmas songs. I think they've actually been playing Mariah Carey since Halloween. <laughs> I, th- I think since the end of summer. These are all really mainstream midtown Manhattan ways to get into the holiday spirit. But yes, today, as I mentioned, we're actually heading to a neighborhood that's off the beaten path for most people in New York, the Diker Heights neighborhood in southwestern Brooklyn. No other neighborhood in New York celebrates Christmas quite like Diker Heights. That is to say, with millions and millions of twinkling Christmas lights and ornaments and Christmas figurines of all types, it is truly an amazing thing. And it seems that the whole neighborhood goes all in on decorating for the holidays. Now, most of our New York listeners are probably familiar with this Diker Heights tradition, even if they've never visited in person. Although I have a feeling that many of you have, and some of you probably even live there. Yeah, and might be actually stringing up some lights as we speak. (laughs) Meanwhile, many out-of-towners are probably familiar with this tradition because, let's face it, the Diker Heights Christmas spectacular is becoming a big tourist destination. During December, the streets and sidewalks are filled with tourists, including many who board special Diker Heights Christmas bus and walking tours. So how exactly did this all get started? And meanwhile, how did Diker Heights get started? And who exactly started this particular Christmas light extravaganza? So that's the story that we'll be exploring today. And we will not, listener, be doing it alone. We've got a special treat for you today because we will be joined by our friend Julia Press, who has been helping us out on the show behind the scenes this fall and who is an awesome researcher and radio reporter. We'll talk with Julia in a moment about Diker Heights and then send her off to the neighborhood to explore the scene with microphone in hand. And she's even going to meet up with the woman who started it all. So join us as we plug in to the story of the lights of Diker Heights. So Tom, we're taking the story out to the Diker Heights neighborhood of Brooklyn today. So how should we get there? Well, you know, I think that we should actually allow a little audio clip to take us there, Greg. Here are some experts, Tony and Mark, who were recorded recently by Julia, who's going to be joining us here in a second. Let's let them set the festive scene for us. These trees, when you see a tree where every single branch is decked out in lights, it's just a spectacular effect. But those lights have to be paid for in terms of that electric bill. And some people have reported that they're paying Con Edison between five, to, I've heard $8,000 for one month. Thousands of dollars to Con Ed. That sounds like my electricity bill during the summer, actually. <laughs> well, these residents are dedicated. They're, they are willing to pay for it. Well, let's bring in Julia, who knows this story intimately, I would say, at this point. Hello, Julia. Welcome to the show, Julia. Hi, thanks for having me. So you're going to be um, heading out on assignment here in a moment and taking us all out to Dyker Heights. But first, Greg and I just have a little bit of business we have to attend to. All right. Are you asking me to formally situate us? Indeed, I am. Okay. 
So we're going to southern Brooklyn between the neighborhoods of Bay Ridge and Bensonhurst. In fact, the entrance of the Verrazano Narrows Bridge and the Gowanus Expressway, which leads up to the bridge, more or less lays on the border between Diker Heights and Bay Ridge. So between Bay Ridge and Bensonhurst. Um, but can you give me, can you give us a, some of the streets just to lay it out on a grid? Mm, well, okay. This depends on who you ask. All right. So according to the Encyclopedia of New York City, Diker Heights is bounded to the north by 8th Avenue and 62nd Street, to the east by New Utrecht and 18th Avenue, and then, of course, in the south down to Fort Hamilton and Gravesend Bay. That is perfectly clear. But if you look, I mean, if you look at a map, it is—it's <laughs> it, not the easiest thing to figure out. I will say, right? And some others will define Diker Heights as a smaller neighborhood than those mm-hmm. particular coordinates. But would you say that the the history of Diker Heights is rather kind of quiet? You know, in comparison to other places in Brooklyn, like say Brooklyn Heights, which we just did this—you know—two episode series on. Um, this neighborhood, Diker Heights, is mostly residential. Yeah, and well, one reason for that, obviously, is Diker Heights' story is much shorter. It's only been a developed area of residential land for about 125 years, mm-hmm. which isn't to say, though, that it's entirely hidden away, because on that southern end of the island, near the coastline, uh, the aforementioned Fort Hamilton, which is a very old U.S. Army base, but still active. In fact, it is the last active duty military post in New York City. Other New Yorkers may be a little bit more familiar with the recreation spot to the fort's north, which is the Diker Beach Golf Course. So Fort Hamilton and the golf course, really big landmarks, mm-hmm. although I would speculate that most New Yorkers today don't actually know Diker Heights for its golf course. Well, I would say most people today know it because of its Christmas traditions. And Julia, to bring you in here, how would you sort of summarize how Diker Heights celebrates the season? Okay, so each year between Thanksgiving and Christmas, the entire neighborhood decks the halls and every other part of their homes and (laughs) yards and streets. They're just covered in Christmas lights and decorations, and people come from all over the world to see them. There's statuary and fountains drenched in electric light. Yeah, (laughs) You could say it is kind of over the top, right? I mean, it's sort of, it kind of gives a National Lampoon's Christmas vacation (laughs) vibe. It's more. It's more than that. But okay, so but to get to this particular story, right? This this confluence of Brooklyn, of Christmas, and major brilliantly over the top lighting displays. I'd like to talk a little bit about Christmas in New York generally, and specifically Christmas lighting. Now, a couple years ago, I did an episode of my spinoff podcast, the show called The First. Still available on iTunes. Still available every single episode, and specifically on the history of Christmas lighting. Yeah, I actually listened to that episode while I was putting together the show. Super helpful. Oh, cool. And by the way, for our patrons, to make it even easier, we're going to send this out as a bonus show to you so you can listen to the show as supporting material. But as a broad recap, the story of Christmas lighting actually starts with the Christmas tree. 
Right. And it was German immigrants who brought this idea of the Christmas tree to the U.S. Mm -hmm. The first documented tree on display in the States was actually in the 1830s by German settlers in Pennsylvania. But I'm going to just go out on a limb. Sorry. Um, Here and and speculate that this was probably not a really widespread tradition because back then you would actually literally have to go out and cut down your own tree. Right. If you lived in a place Mm -hmm. like New York it would have been a bit challenging to head off and hack down a tree and cart it back unless, unless of course, you were really wealthy and you could pay somebody else to cut it down for you. Or, you know, maybe you were just naturally a brawny woodsman yourself, Tom, and had an axe and a team of horses on hand to drive the <laughs> You're looking a little brawny today. Maybe <laughs> You're looking you like you're it. fantasizing. <laughs> Well, all of that changed in 1851 when a woodsman from the Catskills named Mark Carr heard about this Christmas tree tradition and decided to capitalize on it. A couple of weeks before Christmas, Carr and his sons chopped down some evergreens, brought them down to New York City, and set up a stand in the bustling Washington market to sell them. So this would be the very first Christmas tree market in New York? Yeah, within a day, actually, he sold out all those trees. And the custom of Christmas trees sprucing up homes took off. You couldn't resist. (laughs) The location of the Washington market, by the way, is just north of today's World Trade Center. So then by the 1850s and 60s, many more New Yorkers were starting to put up Christmas trees in their homes. But let's just turn for a second to lighting. And Julia, because you're our lighting expert here... They clearly didn't have lighting on their trees back then. Well, actually, believe it or not, they did. People would actually melt candle wax onto the branches so that they could stick. And other people use needles to pierce the candles and hold them in place. (laughs) I'm sorry. And why do we think there were so many fires in 19th century New York? Fortunately, though, by the 1880s, we would get the very first electric Christmas lighting. By the 1880s, because Thomas Edison had displayed his new invention, the incandescent carbon filament light bulb in Menlo Park, New Jersey, on New Year's Eve in 1879. So by the 1880s, then, I guess they were using those bulbs on Christmas trees, too? They were, and you won't be surprised to learn that it was actually the vice president of the Edison company uh, and Thomas Edison's good friend, a man named Edward Hibbert Johnson who was the very first person to put electric lights on a Christmas tree. So the year was 1882, and Johnson decked out the tree at his Murray Hill home. Descriptions of this actually make it sound insane. It didn't just light up. It also had multiple colors, and it spun around like it was on a Lazy Susan. It spun around. That that actually would rival some of the things I saw in Diker Heights. (laughs) According to a New York Times story published in 1884, Johnson's tree, quote, stood about six feet high in an upper room and dazzled persons entering the room. There were 120 lights on the tree with globes of different colors, while the light tinsel work and usual adornment of Christmas trees appeared to their best advantage in illuminating the tree. And I'm a, I'm imagining if the Times is writing about this particular Christmas tree, mm-hmm. um, that this was probably some sort of PR scheme that had been designed to promote Edison's new electric light bulbs. Well, and it worked, obviously. 
Hey, we're still talking about it 135 yes. years later. <laughs> yeah, but I'm sure it was still pretty magical, though. It's a pretty good example of how electric light could be used for more than just your mm-hmm. basic illumination. I mean, this proved that light could be used to create accent and mood. It's kind of like early mood lighting. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, the spinning around, I mean, the projections upon the walls. It's pretty fancy. Although, you know, this this concept didn't stick right away. I mean, for the next 20 years, it was only the super wealthy who could afford electricians and personal generators, which you needed to power all this stuff, let alone to buy lights that were used only for decorative purposes. Finally, in 1894, 125 years this year... Mm. Actually, President Grover Cleveland made waves by lighting the White House Christmas tree for the very first time. To quote from an Associated Press article from that year, quote, There was a Christmas tree set in the library, the first that the Cleveland children have called their own. And Mrs. Cleveland herself added the finishing touches to the tree, which, while not of great proportions, was beautifully trimmed and decorated with tiny party-colored electric lamps in place of the old-time wax candles. From the sounds of that article, it sounds like those tiny colored lamps uh, that the Clevelands were using on the White House Christmas tree, well, they were sort of strung up like the tiny bulbs that we still see today. We're getting closer In fact, just a few years later, in 1903, General Electric started selling strings of Christmas lights, the very first pre-wired lighting outfits. So you could get 24 lights Mm -hmm. for the bargain price Uh of $1903 for $12, which would be about $350 in today's money. (laughs) These were – this was clearly – For the rich. This was a luxury to have light bulbs on your Christmas tree. Absolutely. But even by this time, by the start of the 20th century, Christmas is already being defined by spending money and buying gifts. It was being commercialized. Right. And so the sale of Christmas lights just became one more symbol of the commercialization and secularization of the holiday. Okay. But to get back to our story today and to where, Julia, you're going to take us in a minute— All of the Christmas lights that you've been talking about here, Greg, were meant to light your tree inside. These were indoor Christmas lights. Yes, at first. But that, too, would change just a few years later. In 1912, the secularization of Christmas went one step further in New York when the first community Christmas tree was put up in Madison Square Park. The tree was free and open to the public making Christmas accessible to the whole city and establishing this new idea of Christmas as a community-building event. Now, according to the New York Times, the tree was 70 feet tall, imported from the Adirondacks, and, quote, brilliantly lighted with a thousand electric bulbs of all hues and strung with toys and candy. Now, the tree lighting ceremony for this very first tree attracted a crowd of 25,000 thousand people as the new york times wrote quote many people in the city have given up house parties to go to see the big tree and help swell the choruses and even santa claus will postpone an early distribution of christmas gifts wow so the whole city really came out to celebrate here in madison square park 
Yeah, and that's also nice that even people who couldn't afford their own trees were brought into the mix here and included in the festivities. Interestingly, after the ceremony, the Times published another article. This one was titled, People Wanted to Sing. And they wrote, quote, Each night after the Christmas Eve celebration around the great tree in Madison Square, people have been coming to see the tree and saying to the policeman in the park, why don't they have music every night so we can come here and sing? We want to sing around the big Christmas tree. That was just the note the Christmas tree workers wanted to sound. They wanted the tree for the people, and they wanted the people to want the tree. This really was the good old days, you know, when, when people approached policemen and asked why there weren't more people to sing. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> wow. So thanks to this outdoor Christmas tree lighting, it sounds like the holiday itself is growing even bigger and really becoming this community mm-hmm. event. Oh, absolutely. And then just less than two decades later, after that first Madison Square Christmas tree in 1931, the very first Christmas tree was placed in a construction site in the almost completed Rockefeller Center. Mm. Two years after that, in 1933, the very first official Rockefeller Center Christmas tree lighting would be held here. And the rest, as they say, is Christmas light history. The lightest of (laughs) histories. This is a very light history. (laughs) But for the rest of the story here, we're going to be... Don't do it. Branching out, if you will, from dense urban areas to areas of New York with a more residential character. Now, for more information on Christmas lighting specifically, just dig back into that episode of the first. But long story short, electric companies wanted to capitalize on this new community tradition that had just developed. And Mm so in the 1920s, they started sponsoring community decorating contests. Within just two or three decades, in-house electricity was more affordable for middle-class families who were, by this point, then spun out into suburbs throughout the United States in their own homes, but close to neighbors that say you might want to impress. Mm -hmm. And thus began the tradition of lavish outdoor lighting decoration. Which brings this story to Diker Heights. Julia. Yeah. Are you ready to head off to Diker Heights and oh, take wait, with? Oh, wait a minute, Tom. Since we're back to Diker Heights here, I, I okay. situated us as to where the neighborhood is located. But could we just have a few minutes before we launch into the Christmas saga of Diker Heights? Could you just remind us of when it was developed and a little bit of a history, kind of a mini history? Okay. Well, back um, even before the Dutch or the English moved in, today's Brooklyn, as we have discussed, was inhabited by the Lenape Indians. Well, that, okay, that is way back. <laughs> <laughs> well, then in 1636, Europeans, of course, began settling in the area under some land grants uh, from the Dutch West India Company, and six towns were established. Now, stick with me here. Mm-hmm. Of the six, five were Dutch. Bushwick, Brooklyn, Flatbush, Flatlands, and New Utrecht. Now, one, Gravesend, was English. And today, many of these are neighborhoods. Many of those sound familiar. Bushwick, you know, Flatlands, all of those. But I didn't hear Diker Heights. Right, because one of these that I just mentioned, New Utrecht, was established in 1657. Now, New Utrecht was basically comprised of the land that would become today's neighborhoods of Borough Park, Bensonhurst, Bath Beach, Bay Ridge, and 
Diker Heights. Oh, so so Diker Heights is actually just a little bit of New Utrecht. Just yeah. a little bit of it. And who actually established New Utrecht then for the Dutch West India Company? Well, a, a deed was granted to establish New Utrecht to a man named Anthony Janssen van Sely, who was the son of a pirate. He was half Dutch and half Moroccan, and he came to the New World uh, and settled here on Long Island. Now, that is a line I like to see in a historical resume. Son of a pirate. <laughs> but Van Saley was a notable figure. He was likely the first Muslim person living in New York, and his descendants include some really bold-faced names, let's just say, including the Vanderbilt family, the Whitney family, Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis, even actor Humphrey Bogart. Wait, Bogart is related to Jackie O? <laughs> all right. Um, yes, all, all through Van Salem. Okay. But when he founded New Utrecht, was it totally separate from the other towns that were being established around this time? Yes, and it would remain separate until the 1670s after the English took over control of the Dutch colonies and lumped all six of those original towns into what they would call King's County, paying respects, of course, back to the British crown. Okay, so we're far back into this area here, King's County, pretty rural, mm -hmm. right? Lots of farms everywhere. Mostly, yeah, mostly farmland. And because of that, slavery flourished throughout the 18th century in this area. In fact, up until the 1770s, just before the American Revolution, slaves made up almost a third of King's County's population. That's a sobering bit of history, needless to say. Yeah. And then in August of 1776, during the Revolution, the British actually used New Utrecht as their home base during the Battle of Long Island uh, when they invaded the colonies. So... This was really an important area in American history. And what was it like after the revolution? Well, as we discussed in those Brooklyn Heights shows, uh, the population of one of those six villages, Brooklyn, just kept on growing and substantially growing. And in 1834, it was granted its own city charter. And then it began annexing the other towns in Kings County one by one. And New Utrecht here was brought into Brooklyn in 1894. And so now we're at the other end of the 19th century here. Mm -hmm. Bought into Brooklyn 1894. What was the town of New Utrecht like? Was it still a bunch of farms? Well, New Utrecht had developed over the 19th century, you know, as farmers had sort of slowly sold off their land. I saw a stat that in 1810, there were 907 residents. But by the 1880s, New Utrecht had more than 4,700 residents. Hmm. Also, you know, of course, this was helped out because by this time, train travel made the whole area more accessible for residents. So New Utrecht became more popular, although there were still plenty of farmers around here who would cart off their produce to sell it at the markets in downtown Brooklyn. But again, New Utrecht is several different neighborhoods today, including the land that is that Fort Hamilton. Right, the fort that is located today just under the bridge, under the Verrazano Bridge. Fort Hamilton is, as you said, one of the oldest forts in continuous operation in the United States. And that fort stands on top of an even older fort, Fort Lewis, which helped defend this area against the British during the War of 1812. 
But Fort Hamilton itself was constructed in the 1820s and 30s, and it's obviously been greatly expanded since then. Um, And yes, it's still in operation today. Huh. I didn't actually visit Fort Hamilton when I was there, but I did notice that Diker Heights is super hilly. I can't imagine that it would have been great for farming. No, and that that's exactly the reason that slope and the difficulty in farming that Diker Heights for much of the 19th century remained mostly woodlands. However, in 1895, a year after New Utrecht actually became part of Brooklyn, a developer named Walter Loveridge Johnson decided to develop this area, this wooded sloped area. He envisioned a kind of suburban community that was still inside Brooklyn. And we are still talking Brooklyn as in the independent city of Brooklyn, which wouldn't actually join up with New York for another three years, 1898. That's right. And so he was the one that named this development Diker Heights? Yes, Johnson did after the Diker Meadow and Beach that his property overlooked. Now, there's some disagreement, before we get any emails about this, there's disagreement about how the meadow and the beach actually got their names originally. Some say it was they were named after the Van Dyke family, uh, who built dikes to drain the meadow, and others said that it was named after the dikes that the Van Dykes built. Now, the dikes that the Van Dykes <laughs> built. Okay, we'll say that 10 times fast. <laughs> And so was this new development like immediately popular when he opened it? Did people immediately start moving in? Pretty much. In January of 1897, the Brooklyn Eagle stated that, quote, Mr. Johnson has met great success with the development of Diker Heights and had probably done more business and made more sales during the past year than all the rest of the surrounding settlements combined. I mean, it is understandable given that it's high, it's a, the elevation is nice, and these views of the ocean. So who were the very first residents? Who were the types of people that were moving in at first? Well, originally, it was a mostly professional and rather upscale neighborhood. They established the Diker Heights Club in 1896 and soon constructed a clubhouse. St. Philip's Episcopal Church was established in 1899. And the construction of really fine homes continued. And so they were marketing this neighborhood essentially as an upscale neighborhood. Oh, yeah. Very exclusive. Now, I flipped through several old Brooklyn Daily Eagles, as I'm wont to do, (laughs) and found advertisements offering, you know, really lovely three-story wooden homes for sale um, with nice front porches and gabled roofs and big windows. Um, Here's one actually from uh, 1909 that's Mm -hmm. for sale for $9,500. And interestingly, it was constructed for two families. This one was here. Um, One would live on the main floors and two additional rooms would rent on the third floor and have a separate entrance. And as this ad says, don't worry, quote, you do not come in contact with your tenant. So (laughs) It's like an Airbnb. (laughs) Basically. (laughs) Now, this neighborhood would actually become more popular and even more accessible once the 4th Avenue subway opened in 1915 that connected Bay Ridge to Manhattan. Now, here's another article from the Brooklyn Daily Eagle in 1917, headline, Suburban Sections Helped by New Transit Lines. Subhead, Diker Heights is fine home section. Um, and you see here these the photos of the new types of homes that had just been constructed in Diker Heights. But it also repeatedly mentions how the neighborhood is, quote, 
restricted, that is to say, mm. restricted against the construction, in this case, of apartment buildings. Um, Julia, since you are our special guest, would you mind reading this little, here, I highlighted this section oh, yeah. um, from the Absolutely. The view of Gravesend Bay from nearly every home in the section is beautiful. From almost any high grade in the section, there is afforded an extensive view of the lower bay from the Narrows to Sandy Hook and of the ocean beyond. Yeah, and then it goes on and um, explains that this is zoned against apartments and that everybody visiting is just basically bowled over by uh, how lovely all the homes are. And why is it that they that their jaws are dropping? Each resident tried to outdo his neighbor in improving the appearance of his property. Ah, so the neighbors of Diker Heights have been competitive for a very long time. Well, you'll have to wait and hear later. <laughs> okay. uh -huh. But in fact, the Christmas decorating right now really is not competitive. It's a very big community-centric event. Mm, okay. But I'll tell you more about that in a minute. The expansion, by the way, of that subway also brought about a, a shift in demographics as this neighborhood actually began attracting more and more Irish and Italian-Americans. And by 1940, the neighborhood was majority Italian-American. So what is today's Diker Heights like? like what, every other month of the year, not December, what is Diker Heights like today? Well, it's still, I would say, and Julian will be telling, taking us there in a second, but I, I'd say it's still a rather well-off Italian-American neighborhood, predominantly, with businesses and restaurants lining its main commercial strip, which is 13th Avenue. And it's still mostly residential. Families who have been living there for three or four generations and you can see today, you still see a broad range of styles of homes, some of the lovely early detached family homes and also more modern and more modest housing. However, what Diker Heights has become famous for around the world is a rather unique and over-the-top display of holiday spirits. So, Julia, are you ready to take us there? I'm ready. All right. We'll go to Diker Heights to see the lights after this. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, 
Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada, where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. So to get to know the Diker Heights Lights tradition, I spoke to a true expert, the person who founded the first bus tours of the Diker Heights Lights. I'm Tony Muya, born and raised in Bensonhurst, Brooklyn, the oldest of three boys. Um, I'm Tony. My other brothers are Vinny and Joey. You can't make this stuff up. <laughs> on the Saturday after Thanksgiving, Tony took me on a tour of the neighborhood. Diker Heights is this little, quiet, Italian-American enclave. There's a Verrazano Bridge in the distance, you know. You can see the the heights part of it as you look down towards Bensonhurst in that direction. But it's kind of bizarre. You're driving around this quiet residential area on a Saturday afternoon, and amidst all the calm are these outrageous decorations covering people's lawns. And even in the daylight, they were pretty striking. So the merry-go-rounds spin around, the rocking horses go up and down, as the wooden soldiers kind of revolve back and forth, the arms on the big soldiers kind of go like this. And you could speak, well, you used to be able to speak into the mic on Santa, but that's uh, sculpted steel. Look how giant the, the wooden soldiers are behind. Do you know how tall they are? They're about 20 feet tall, and Santa's about 15 feet tall. Yeah, pretty amazing. <laughs> now, the reason we're there is to meet the woman responsible for pumping Diker Heights full of Christmas spirit. Her name is Lucy Spada. And Tony and I met Lucy at her iconic Diker Heights home on 84th between 11th and 12th. It's the place where Christmas decorations first came to the neighborhood. Oh, and there's the Palazzaro. Here's Lucy's house. It's oh, not one of the biggest, wow. but you could see. And her house just goes up to that Santa head. Now, it's a month before Christmas, and her halls are already decked inside and out. Her front yard is covered in life-size nutcrackers and light-up snowmen and angels. And the inside has everything from Christmas-themed tea towels to Santa's sleigh. And, of course, Hallmark holiday movies playing on the TV. All day. I watched them. My dog does too, but you know, today he thinks he's getting away with murder. Yeah, 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 he's They're talking about her French bulldog, who I guess you could say was getting into his own sort of holiday spirit. As we talk, you can hear him tearing up a Christmas tree-shaped chew toy in the background. That means he likes you because if he didn't, forget it, he wouldn't stop barking. As Lucy tells it, she grew up with decorating in her blood. She and her mother would always decorate their home in Bensonhurst, and after her mother died, she continued the tradition. My father was always afraid 
What are you putting outside now? What are you hammering in my bricks now? What are you doing now? He was always afraid. He thought I was going to knock his house down. So when she got her own place in Decker Heights in the late 80s, she naturally saw it as an opportunity to up her game. I was always a decoration freak from my mother. But now it was my house, so I went bigger. She put out her mother's classic 70s plastic light-up lawn ornaments shaped like angels. But she also started adding more and more decorations. And in this quiet neighborhood, she was attracting attention. They really didn't like it because it was bringing too much attention, too much traffic. They tried to complain. They even called the cops on her. But this wouldn't stop someone like Lucy. Well, I have told people, if you don't like it, move. I'm not going to stop it because they don't like it. No. It's my house. So she stuck with it. And I guess it's true when they say, if you can't beat them, join them. Because over time, neighbors started following her lead. First, her friend Al Palazzato, who lived across the street, started decorating. And little by little, more and more people did too. Whoever complained, I guess they figured it's a losing battle. So they joined in and now everybody caught on. So it became Dacolites. Some years, Lucy gave out chestnuts and hot chocolate. She hired a live band to perform up and down the street. She had a Santa Claus. He was 400 pounds. Original. Round. No padding. She's even put out a snow machine. And this is in addition to the process that is decorating the house each year. This came with a crane. And the big soldiers, they have sandbags on them because no matter how heavy they are, you get a heavy wind or something, they will fall. Lucy spends a full month working on it with the help of her employees from the sausage and pepper stand that she runs the rest of the year. And that doesn't even account for the cost, though Lucy says it isn't enough to break the bank for her. No, the electric isn't at all that bad. You gotta remember now everything is LED and everything's on timers. Hard to believe, but I guess I'll take her word for it. No matter what the cost of decorating is, though, it still sort of feels like a bit of a Christmas off when you drive down the street, with neighbors competing to put up the most lights, the biggest Santa, the craziest display. But Lucy told me that's not how it is, at least on her block. They go by their means. What they could afford, that's what they do. Whether you do big or you do small, you have to have the meaning of Christmas, not just to be noticed. What is the spirit of Christmas to you? Given. And this is given because I don't want no money. And the purpose of this was for you to come down and enjoy yourself because maybe you couldn't afford to go to the city or couldn't afford to take your kids to see Santa Claus in a store because you couldn't afford to get them a toy. Lucy may not be in it for the fame, but she has become sort of a local celebrity. People show up and they're like, Lucy, this is Lucy. Thank you for what you do. It's just, it's amazing. And it, it always throws her every year whenever yeah. these people approach her. But there's such, such affection for and what sincere. you do. Sincerity, yeah. 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 Her apartment is covered in newspaper clippings and fan mail. This is a letter from... Uh, these people that came. Barcelona, I think. I was reading yeah. it. And her house itself has become a landmark in people's lives. I got a phone call last week, I think. A mother. She says, my son has been coming to your house since he's a baby. And his girlfriend with him. She says, December 7th, do you have a Santa Claus outside? I said, my Santa Claus passed on. But what's the reason you're asking me this? 
She said, because my son wants to come December 7th at 6.30 with his girlfriend for his girlfriend to sit on Santa's lap so he could propose to her. I said, well, if you put it that way, if I got to dress up like Santa Claus, there'll be a Santa Claus outside. Now, Lucy was certainly the force behind the lights in the first place, but at this point, they've taken on a life of their own. Never in a million years did I think that this was going to be like this. I mean, just ask my son what it's like on Christmas Eve. Don't ask. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Rockefeller Center has nobody there. They're all here Christmas Eve. You got to come here on Christmas Eve. You're better off you take a helicopter and look down. I wanted to hear from someone who'd seen Diker Heights change from what it was like in the early days of Lucy's decorating. So naturally, I asked Tony. It was the thing to do if you grew up in Brooklyn. Everyone decorated in Brooklyn, but no one decorated like Diker Heights. Um, so it was really well known. All over Brooklyn, Italian-American families decorated their homes for the biggest holiday of their year. But Diker Heights took it to a new level because it's more affluent than the areas around it. And I think with a bigger canvas, you're able to paint something much, much larger. So Tony's always known of the Diker Heights lights, but for a long time, it was mostly visited by people in the area. And that's because it's pretty off the beaten path. As I tell people, you can take the train, but the nearest train is, is in either direction about a mile away. And then you can either walk or cab or Uber it. But it's completely residential. So when he started bringing tour buses there in 2006, he saw it as a way to show people a more authentic side of the New York holiday season. I always call it the the undisputed Christmas pageantry of New York City, right? Because Rockefeller Center, it's great. But, you know, our company slogan is Rockefeller Center, forget about it. But things have changed since he first ran his tour. I mean, now we're at the point where over, you know, 150,000 people show up every December, and I'm sure it's going to be even more this year. I mean, I know we're bringing more by bus. And I got to see this all for myself by hopping on one of Tony's tour buses. Let me set the scene. It's the first winter storm of the year. So it's snowy, it's cold, and it's a Monday night. So I show up half expecting the tour to be empty. But I could not have been farther off. Good evening, everybody. Good evening. Ah, beautiful. Really good. What about uh, the Brooklyn version of Good Evening? Do we know it? Anybody want to take a shot at it? How you doing? Really good. Really good, actually. I feel like we got some locals on this bus. I actually think I might have been the only New Yorker on the bus. Where are you from, lady with the glasses? Uh, Norway. Germany. Sweden. England. Sheffield. Switzerland. Kentucky. Texas. So our international squad rolled across the water into Brooklyn while vintage Christmas music hummed away in the background. And the tour played out basically just like Tony had described. First, we take them to Bay Ridge, which is a really quiet sort of enclave where it's nice to see sort of the quiet aspect of the way homes are decorated and the neighborhoods. Now, these are nice. I love these lights, in fact. But I'm going to be honest. I'm taking you out for a steak dinner, and this is like the bread that comes out. So I just don't want you to fill up on bread before the steak comes out, okay? Then we got into what we could call the meteor part of the tour. Some of these people pay professional Christmas decorating services to cover the houses and lights for them. These people, for a couple of grand, they'll decorate your house from top to bottom and really just do an amazing job. And these are people that just, you know, do other things the rest of the year. James, the owner of BNR, is a teacher. Nando, who owns the Meglio Decorators, he's a fireman. I'm going to throw this out there. 
if there's anyone, I would be okay with covering my house in electric wires <laughs> to New York City firemen. We saw Lucy's house, which I should remind you is not professionally decorated. Our tour guide Mark told me that was his favorite stop of the tour. It has literally everything and more. I don't know, it's like you had a weird dream about decorating a house for Christmas and then you saw it in real life. We even visited a house that had a synchronized music and lights display. Rob Delora is that guy who went to Las Vegas and was inspired by the fountain, so he decided to sync up his house lights to Christmas music that we're going to tune into. He takes his house and his mother-in-law's house next door, takes 40,000 lights and he sets them up to a program on his uh, with a radio transmitter and his computer. When we pull the bus up to the house, we tune the radio tuner to his frequency. 89.1 FM, Rob DeLauro's Christmas hits. And we literally just stay there and, and the music is coming through the speakers of the bus like a sort of a drive-in movie effect and we watch 40,000 lights move in unison. Well, let's see how long we can stay here before the car behind us gets As we walked around, I checked in with some of the people in my group, and everyone seemed to have a different reaction to the lights. They're gorgeous. It definitely puts you in the Christmas spirit. Um, Especially with all the snow tonight, isn't it? Yeah. Absolutely spectacular. Unbelievable. I've never seen anything like it at all in my life. I'm not sure if it's crazy or nice or scary. Something between? I love the, uh, all the colors and all the lights, but my wife, she's not so fond of all the lights. <laughs> I like it to keep it more simple than he. So I'm joining him today. Shows that I li- really love him. If I would be a neighbor, I guess I would move away. <laughs> big finish, big finish. And it's true that not all the homeowners are thrilled about the lights, as Tony told me. There are certainly people that don't decorate. And so those folks are not happy about uh, what Diker Heights has become. Residents have complained for years about crowds, running generators and garbage. Food trucks will be banned from parking in the heart of the neighborhood. So this year, a bill was passed that means for the first time there aren't any vendors on the streets of Diker Heights. But that hasn't stopped the hordes of people that visit the neighborhood each December. And even those dark, undecorated houses aren't really so dark. Dark, we should put in quotes, right? Because when you have a house on one side that's lit up and the house on the other, and you have got the light from both houses sort of blending in and, and whatnot. So the houses don't look so dark. At the end of the day, though, for people like Lucy, it doesn't matter if everyone decorates. It doesn't matter that the streets fill with people or that she has to spend a month setting up lawn ornaments and weighing them down so they can't fly away in any old winter storm. Because to her, the lights are more than just a holiday attraction. They're about the community they bring together and the people in it. If I knew them personally, I would have so many friends. My husband died. It was on Facebook. And there's people I don't even know that told me they were sorry. Couple said, are you going to decorate? Oh, you got to decorate. If you don't decorate, the block won't be the same. And uh, I wasn't going to do it this year. See, I'm going to cry. But... uh. So he asked me to continue, and I'm doing it for him now. So he's only gone four months. So, you know, I'm trying to keep it up. Because this is something he loved and I loved. The way I am right now, when I go outside, I feel better. Just seeing their faces. And Tony feels that too. 
Even if there's enough staff, I'll just be there because, like I said, it's just, it's a really happy place to be. Everyone has that same look on their face like a kid on Christmas morning, you know? And there's something pretty magical about that. Somehow, mysteriously and magically, um, none of the houses ever go black. You know what I mean? It's like they're always on. We've even had nor'easters. Maybe those have taken out some of the lights. But there's something about, you know, someone's looking over Diker Heights uh, because they always, the lights always seem uh, to be on. Julia, thank you so much for taking us to Diker Heights. Absolutely. What a beautiful story. Yeah, and thank you for um, all that you've done behind the scenes. Our, our listeners are not aware of all of the magic that uh, you have spun to help us produce the show over the past few months. So we greatly appreciate it. Thank you for being here. Yeah, thanks for bringing me on to the Bowery Boys team. And a huge thanks to the wonderful people of Diker Heights, Yeah, I want to say thanks to Lucy and Tony and Mark, who was the tour guide. And if you guys are looking to go on a tour of the Diker Heights lights yourselves, check out A Slice of Brooklyn Bus Tours, Tony's company. And thanks to the people on my tour bus who let me chat with them about their experience. And how many countries were they from? That was great. Oh, a handful. (laughs) Yeah. And Texas. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was like the UN in there. Yeah. I'm sure that listeners will want to see photos of your experience out in Diker Heights. You've taken photos. Greg, you've taken photos. I took photos Mm -hmm. there last weekend. We will be posting these images on our website, BoweryBoysHistory.com. You really shouldn't listen to this show without heading over to see those images. Because <laughs> it's it's quite remarkable. You think you know what over-the-top Christmas spectacle is, and uh, you'll be pleasantly surprised. Uh, we also want to thank all of those who support us on Patreon.com for a small monthly contribution. You help us produce this show every two weeks, and we provide you with a bunch of extra bonus materials, including our Bowery. Boys Movie Club. We'll be releasing a new episode of that very soon. And then those of you at the $5 and up levels are able to subscribe to The Takeout, our sort of exclusive post-show recap of, well, or, or exploration of topics that we were not able to actually cover on the show or things that had to be cut out. So what are we going to talk about today, Greg? We'll be talking a little bit more with Julia about her experience, and then we'll have a couple press clippings, both of the very first Christmas tree and then one of the very first early references of the Diker Heights tradition. So you can get that by joining us on patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Bowery Boys. So thank you very much for listening. And Julia, thank you very much for joining us. Well, have a great New York week. Whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire.